G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. This podcast is made available by Vision Christian Media, thanks to the generosity of our supporters. Your donation today means great podcasts like this remain available to help people look to God daily. Please make your donation to Visionathon today at vision.org.au. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Vines. We are taking the gospel to the world. Pastor, apologist and Bible teacher. Bringing people far from God near to God. We believe in one truth that will be delivered in love and compassion. Connecting every one person to all that God has promised them. Today. Today. Today with Jeff Vines. Welcome. Thanks for joining me. My name is Bill. And today we start a new series called Hey Up There. It's about how God constantly calls us to look up there, to turn our eyes and hearts to Him. In this message, Pastor Jeff is looking at Matthew chapter 5 or the Sermon on the Mount, what is arguably one of Jesus' most famous speeches. Here's Pastor Jeff now. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 5. We're in a series called Look Up Here, and we're saying basically that all the turmoil in our world and even in our individual lives, uh, God continually calls us to look up here, to look up to God, and to begin to put the principles of Scripture into our lives, and life would be so different if we would just trust Him in this. And the basis of this series basically comes from the Sermon on the Mount, and we're going to take an intense look at it, probably like you've, hopefully like you've never looked at it before. And as we get into it, J.T. Fisher, who is a world-renowned psychiatrist, so he spent his entire life looking at the issue of mental health. And here's what he says about the Sermon on the Mount. He says, for nearly 2,000 years, the Christian world has been holding in its hands the complete answer to its restless and fruitless yearning. Here rests the blueprint for successful human life with optimum mental health and contentment. So if you want optimum mental health and contentment in your hands, the Sermon on the Mount... Now, the Sermon on the Mount, I don't know if you know this, is the most famous piece of literature in human history. Did you know that? It's been quoted by presidents and prime ministers, even rock stars and musicians, Jimmy Carter, Ronald Reagan, George Bush, Bill Clinton, Sting, the Rolling Stones, Gandhi, and even Napoleon himself, all quoted quite often sections of the Sermon on the Mount. And there's a common saying today that goes like this. You don't really need to believe all the dogma of the Christians. If you just live by the principles found on the Sermon on the Mount, all will be well with you and your relationship with God. So there you have it, folks. Forget about the doctrine of justification by faith and the doctrine of grace and any major theological precept. Just design your life after the teachings, live by the teachings Jesus presented in his discourse on the Sermon on the Mount 
And when you get to heaven on judgment day, you can just present a little certificate, your baptism certificate, and a little note from your pastor that said, I lived by the principles of the Sermon on the Mount. Give it over and you're good with God. You're good to go. (laughs) Now, does anybody see a problem with this? If you're going to try to live your life by the Sermon on the Mount and you think that's going to get you in, well, let's talk about that for a moment. Let's take a 40,000 foot view of what we're going to be looking at here. Because the first thing Jesus does is he's going to confront you concerning your relationship to the world around you. He's going to say, if you're going to live your life based on the principles of the Sermon on the Mount, you're going to have to be salt and light in the world. Uh, Salt is not about flavor. It's about preservation. So if you want to preserve food and there's no refrigeration, no freezers, you just pump everything full of salt. They obviously weren't concerned about heart attacks, but they did want to preserve food. So the first thing Jesus is going to do, he's going to tell you that your default attitude, if you're a Christ follower, is that when you see people's lives falling apart, physically, spiritually, emotionally, while most people just run away, you're going to run toward them. You're going to be all about high maintenance people. How you doing so far? I always like to look at the military guy who says to his buddies, I'm going in. I'm going to put myself in harm's way on behalf of someone else. I'm going to bear this burden, carry this load, subject myself to drowning. You know, when you try to help a drowning person, the first thing they do is what? Try to drown you. Jesus is saying, if you're going to live by the principles of the Sermon on the Mount, if you see a neighborhood falling apart economically, socially, in poverty, most people move out. As a Christian, you're going to move in. So if you're in a community and it's changing all around you with people you don't necessarily like, you're not going to run. You're going to move deeper into it and you're going to pour yourself into it. Your time, your money, your heart, your emotion. Jesus says, you're going to be different. When everybody else is moving out, you're moving in. And if that wasn't hard enough, then he changes the topic and he says, let's talk about your relationship to each other. You've heard it said, don't kill people. Well, Jesus said, I tell you that when you hate your brother or when you are angry with your brother, you've killed them. If murder is wrong, he's going to tell you that the seeds that grow into murder are also wrong. And he's going to tell you that if you're going to be his disciple, every single person you meet, every personal encounter that you have, even though they're of a different race, regardless of class, moral character, personality, you're going to treat them as your exact equal. You're going to see them as something precious in the image of God. Something that is infinitely precious. So if you meet a Republican or a Democrat or a rich person, or a poor person, or a middle class, or lower class, or religious, irreligious, Christian, Muslim, Hindu, or atheist, all of them, Jesus says, should feel welcomed and cherished by you. Not just tolerated, no, not just tolerated, but cherished by you. So if you're going to live your life by the principles of the Sermon on the Mount, you're going to embrace high-maintenance communities and high-maintenance people. How are you doing so far? Well, here we go. Next thing he's going to talk about is sexual integrity. He's going to say that Christ's followers understand that a sexual sin is more than the act. It's also the thought. Jesus will tell you that even if you look upon someone in an improper way, you've committed adultery in your heart. If you see an attractive man or an attractive woman, and suddenly your imagination takes over and you start wondering what it would be like to be with them, Jesus said, then you have been with him. When we get to that section, he's going to show you. And you're going to see how determined Jesus is to show you and me how immoral, how a violation of design that it really is to give yourself to someone sexually that you've not given yourself to emotionally, economically, spiritually, psychologically. Jesus demands that you keep mind and body inextricably tied together. Don't give your body to someone that you're not willing to give your entire life to. Don't have sex unless you've 
married this person and made a covenant with them to take care of them economically for the rest of their lives. Don't do something with the body that you don't have enough integrity to do with your whole life. And he's going to remind you that God does not penetrate you with his spirit until there's full commitment. You shouldn't do the same with someone else. No body commitment until life covenant commitment. Now let's go back to that common saying. People say, you don't need to believe all the dogma of the Christians. If you just live by the principles found in the Sermon on the Mount, all will be well with you and God. How you doing? <laughs> Come on now. And it just gets more difficult. Because the next thing he says, it's not enough just to avoid telling lies. Don't exaggerate. Don't embellish. That pretty much does away with every sermon illustration I've ever given. <laughs> Come on. Don't embellish, don't exaggerate, don't ever swear. Speak in exact phrases that correspond to reality. Let your yes mean yes, your no mean no. Every little word you say, every little yes, every little no, every little offhanded comment should be as absolutely true as if you swore on a stack of Bibles. In other words, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help you God. <laughs> Number five, he's gonna tell you, how do you respond to people who are hostile toward you? Your political opponents, your in-laws, your siblings, your mother-in-law, your workmate. This is where Jesus is going to tell you and confront you to turn the other cheek. And the, the, other, the cheek is where you kissed people in Jesus' day. But the real meaning here is if somebody wrongs you, if you're a Christ follower, really living your life by the principles of the Sermon on the Mount, then you never think about payback or revenge or hostility. So when some idiot cuts you off on the two... You see, I just violated the Sermon on the Mount. I call somebody an idiot. So when somebody created... When somebody created in the image of God, precious in his sight, cut you off on the 210, let him go. When you get to church and somebody stole your parking place, let him go. When somebody took your seat in church that you always have, let it go. When a coworker is abusive or unkind, when a Democrat abuses you on social media, when a Republican belittles you in the public, resist the default to move in and exact revenge. You say, if you're going to live by the principles of the Sermon on the Mount, you're going to instantaneously forgive. It's going to be the posture of your life. And everything you do is to promote restoration. So you're not apathetic and you're not passive. You do move in, but when you move in, it's for the purpose of telling the truth and to promote peace, to show them what real hope and love and care is all about. Restoration. Blessed are the peacemakers. And then he moves into the next area, your response and attitude toward the poor. Jesus says that when you give to the poor, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. So Jesus assumes that if you're going to live your life on the basis of the Sermon on the Mount, that you're automatically a generous person giving to the poor, giving to those who are less fortunate. And he assumes that generosity coincides with a constantly downsizing in your life. He assumes that every time you get a raise, you're not going to build bigger and bigger barns and bigger and bigger houses and have more and more stuff. You're going to live the way you've always lived. And the more he gives you, the more you're going to give away. How you doing with that one? And then he says, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. In other words, don't tell yourself about it when you are generous. Don't sit yourself down and say, dude, you're awesome. And don't treat the poor in a condescending way. As if to say, here you go, you loser. Look at me, I'm such a good person to help these pathetic people. Don't have a patronizing, paternalistic attitude. Jesus is saying, I don't want you to do that because the reason you do something is just important as the fact that you do it. And then he goes on. He starts talking about your spiritual life. You want to live your life by the principles of the Sermon on the Mount? When you pray, don't do it in public so as to be heard. Go in your room, shut the door. 
And he's going to tell you this is the acid test of what your heart is really like. You come to church, you pray, you worship, you engage in the sacraments. You may even do so in life group and rooted group and a Sunday school class. But the real acid test of where your heart is, when you're alone, when you do not have to think about anything else, when your thoughts are yours to spend as you want, do your thoughts automatically and spontaneously go to God. When you're in your car by yourself, when you're walking on the beach, when you find yourself alone, what is the default of your heart? What do you start thinking about? Do you think about God and his goodness and your relationship with him? Do you take an introspective look at where you are with God? Do you think about what he's done in the past, where you are in the present, and where God will take you in the future? Jesus will confront you, and he will say, if you're going to live by the principles of the Sermon on the Mount, then you've got to ask yourself the question, what is it that captures your heart, your time, your money, your attention? Jesus is going to tell you that whatever you think most about in your prayer time or private time, wherever your heart tends to go by default, that thing is your real God. He's going to say, your real God is what you spend your time thinking about when you're by yourself, what your mind automatically drifts to, what most captures your heart. And it gets more and more difficult. He goes to the next thing and he says, your attitude toward money. He says, don't store up treasures on earth, but where your treasure is there, where your heart be also. Now look, look a storehouse, and we'll get to this later, but just in the 40,000 foot view, a storehouse is the place that you put your money that is most easy for you to put it there. It's the place you don't, mind, you don't have a lot of regret. There's no buyer's remorse. You love forking over the cash in this area. That's your storehouse. What is it? A couple of weeks ago, I had a chance to play a very, very nice golf course. And had I played it, it would have been the most expensive round of golf I ever had. Do you think I played it? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Because I love golf. And the question Jesus is going to confront you with is, it's okay. I don't care, Pastor Jeff, you love golf. Do you love my kingdom as much, even more? When you spend your resources, would you spend that much resource on building my kingdom? And if not, then you know now where your real God is. And if you find it difficult to give away 10, 15, 20% of your income to God's mission in the world, it's because your real storehouse is in something else. So generosity, radical generosity, is a sign that your heart is moving toward God. A lack of generosity is a sign that your heart is moving away from God. A lack of a private prayer life, Jesus is going to tell you, is a sign that you're not moving toward God, that you're self-centered, you're other-oriented, and you have other kinds of false gods in your life. So all you got to do is live your life by the principles of the Sermon on the Mount. You're good to go. <laughs> Are you getting it yet? Block nine, your attitude toward circumstances. He says, don't be anxious. He says, a real Christ follower is not going to worry so much. Remember, the Lord's prayer section is in the Sermon on the Mount. And he's going to say, because you know that your father's in heaven and he has your best interest in mind. And you know, because he's in heaven, he has a perspective you don't have. He's able to connect the dots of your life. So even in unfortunate sets of circumstances, you may not know what God is doing, but God knows what he's doing. So you don't worry. You trust in the goodness of God. In fact, Jesus is going to make the point then inordinate and painful worry is always a form of pride because you think you know better than God how your life ought to be going and you're afraid he's going to mess it up. <laughs> and if that's the case, worry is a sign of where your real God is. It's in your outcomes. Those are your gods. So he's going to confront you with what really gives you peace in your life. When are you able to go, 
And for most of us in the West, it's how much money's in the bank account. Come on, let's just be honest. That's what gives us peace. If we don't have enough, we're worried all the time. We're worried sick. And Jesus will tell you and me, that's because your real God is in money. And he'll tell you in the Sermon on the Mount, can't serve both God and money. Got to make up your mind which one you're going to get your peace from. And he says, when you come to have to choose between your real God, what gives you peace, and what you say gives you peace, you're always going to choose the one that you think will advance your agenda, not God's. So if you lack generosity, it's a sign that your real God is not God. If you have a lack of a private prayer life and you only pray when you come into this place, it's a sign of who your real God is. And your constant striving and anxiety is also a sign of your real God. And he keeps going. Talks about your attitude toward people who have what you determined are wrong beliefs. Amen. (laughs) Even the children will cry out if the adults don't. What is your response to people who strongly disagree with your political views? If I were to go on your social media page, what would I discover about you? What would I learn that you hate? How do you treat people who you consider to be immoral? Jesus is going to say, judge not lest you not be judged or lest you be judged. But that can't mean don't criticize or reprimand because otherwise you'd have to throw most of the Bible out. To judge is not the absence of rebuke or criticism, but to give such correction without humility and winsomeness and love and hope and restoration. It's not about an apathetic life, a passive life. It's about when you confront somebody that they know almost right away that you're not confronting them to prove yourself to be right. You're actually talking to them because you want restoration between the two of you. And what Jesus is going to tell you that if you're going to live your life on the basis of the Sermon on the Mount, then You're going to be salt and light, which means that people will not always agree with you. They may even persecute you, but they will never feel that they're hated by you. Okay. How you doing? I'm assuming that we've all got this down. And we live our lives on the basis of the Sermon on the Mount, so we are good with God. Right? Wrong! And if you think you're living that way, you're delusional, man. (laughs) Most of you violated one of those in the last 30 seconds. (laughs) I mean, think about that. The Sermon on the Mount, a life of joy divestiture in which we are constantly shedding power, shedding wealth, shedding comfort. A life of absolute integrity and sexuality and speech. A life where you love people so much that you never treat anybody with disdain or indifference. A life of love and trusting God that you never worry and never stingy. Life at the highest, nosebleed top life. (laughs) Jesus says, if you be like this, if you live like this, oh yeah, you're going to stand out. You're going to be noticeably different because ain't nobody else going to be this way. You will stand out in the darkness. So there's a beauty and there's a wonder to the Sermon on the Mount, as we're going to see week after. We're just in the introduction, not of this sermon, of the series. Don't worry. But there's also a a horror associated with the Sermon on the Mount. Now, Now, stay with me. For much of the 20th century, I've seen this statement again and again in my reading, in my conversation. I hear it by those who have abandoned the church but still want to talk about goodness, and they find it difficult. I also read it in books that try to keep a sense of morality while debunking all religion. They also find that difficult. I still hear it among young people when I tell them that I still believe in the church, that it's the hope of the world with all of its sin and frailty and 
imperfection. It's still the hope of the world. And it goes like this. Here's the modern statement. We are modern people. We don't believe a lot of the old beliefs, miracles and the resurrection stuff. We are modern people. We live in a scientific age. And so much of the Christian dogma, we just throw it out. But wait, the Sermon on the Mount. What a wonderful thing. What a wonderful ethical blueprint of how we all should live. Yeah, well, I'm still waiting on somebody to live that way. <laughs> See what they're saying? We don't need all the dogma, all the Christian dogma. We don't need your, all we need to do is live by the Sermon on the Mount. <laughs> okay, I find that funny. You're, you're obviously not laughing, but that... <laughs> Virginia Stem Owens is a writer and an author who taught literature at a number of prestigious universities. She recently gave her students an assignment. It was very easy. Step one, read the Sermon on the Mount. Step two, write an essay. She was totally shocked at what came back. Although she writes later, she shouldn't have been. Many of them had never even heard of the Sermon on the Mount. Most of them had never read it. And all of them, almost all of them were unacquainted with it. So you know what their essay responses were? I hate the Sermon on the Mount. One person said, one student, I did not like the Sermon on the Mount. It made me feel like I had to be perfect and no one is. I don't feel safe. <laughs> Another student said, the things asked in the sermon are absurd. To look at a woman like that is adultery. To be angry or insult someone like that is murder. Those are the most extreme, stupid, inhuman statements I've ever heard. And Virginia Owens concludes by writing this, finally, biblical illiteracy has come to the point where people in America are able to respond to Jesus Christ without filtering him through 2,000 years of cultural haze. Honest, ignorant ears can finally hear the Sermon on the Mount as it really is, and they hated it. It was horror. It was disgusting. Do you know what she's saying? She's saying, you and I as Christ followers, we've been able to soften the Sermon on the Mount for far too long now. Now we've got a whole new generation that never heard of it, never read it. And when they read it, they read it as it really is. And it makes them mad because they can't live up to it. Anyone who says you don't need doctrine or dogma, you don't need the church. You just need to live by the principles Jesus gave during the Sermon on the Mount and it will be good with you and God. Anyone who ever says that has never read the Sermon on the Mount. Because if you look at what the sermon really says and you start to grasp it, you know what you're going to do? Lord, save me from the Sermon on the Mount. Help me, God. Please take it away. <laughs> I was out in Palm Springs not too long ago with a, a friend of mine and there was a golf tournament on. So we got to sit right on the bank at PGA West and watch all the pros warm up. And after about 10 minutes, I just got depressed. And my friend Brett Mullen could tell I was depressed. And he said, what's wrong? And I said, man, what is that? I can't do that. I had, this, I had this illusion that I was good. But look at that. I can't live up to that. I just wanted to quit. I quit. That's it. I'm not doing this anymore. <laughs> See, the reason we do that is because when we read and understand the words of the Sermon on the Mount, if you're honest, that's exactly how you expect people around you to live. You've expected people to live that way. You've been demanding that everybody else should live that way. And down deep in your heart, you know you should be living that way, but you ain't living that way. And at the same time, it's so detailed, it highlights motives as well as action that you start to think nobody can escape. And in other words, this is what you know life should be. This is what you know you should be like. But you fall infinitely short. You can't even come close to it. Unless you lie to yourself, if you truly try to understand the Sermon on the Mount, it will condemn you, expose you, it will disgust you. Because you'll realize, man, 
Who can do that? It's unfair. It's unrealistic. The problem is if you see the beauty of it and the horror of it at the same time, what in heaven's name can you do? Now, this is where it gets good. This is step one of the Sermon on the Mount series. Imagine for over 400 years, the people of Israel have not heard from God. 400 years between Malachi and Matthew, no prophet, no teacher, no preacher, no words. And Jesus comes on the scene and it's 30 years before he really says anything. He says a few things in the temple, but it's 30 years before he starts his teaching ministry. You've been listening to Today with Jeff Vines. Thanks for joining us. Next time, we'll bring you the rest of this message from Pastor Jeff. You come through a humble door. The work and Word of God is in you because you came in humility and now He is doing a good work in you that He's promised to bring to completion. The spiritually destitute, they're the ones who get the kingdom. And that's just the intro to the Sermon on the Mount. You can listen to more messages like this. Just search for Today with Jeff Vines wherever you get your podcasts. You make me want to dance and sing With every single breath I breathe I will break this offering You are my wonder You bring the wonder Today 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 with Jeff Fines. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.